Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has released the third part of a massive scientific survey of the climate crisis. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has charged that governments and businesses are lying and are, quote, not just turning a blind eye, they are adding fuel to the flames, they are choking our planet based on their vested interests and historic investments in fossil fuels. There's overwhelming agreement that we must act now, but what in, are we in fact doing? And if we do act now, what should we be doing? Elizabeth Cripps of the University of Edinburgh examines what we owe to each other and how we can and should distribute the burdens of protecting the Earth's climate in her new book, What Climate Justice Means and Why We Should Care. It's published by Bloomsbury Continuum and brings Elizabeth Cripps to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Do you agree with UN Secretary General Guterres that governments and businesses are lying? I agree that I agree entirely with him that we're in a situation of extreme injustice where essentially the interests of huge numbers of vulnerable people are being sacrificed for the vested interests of a minority. You're a moral philosopher. Is this a moral issue? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's a, it's a moral crisis. And I think that this often doesn't get recognized or talked about. We tend to think about climate change as a political crisis, as a technical challenge, as a scientific challenge. And it is all of these things. But fundamentally, this is a, a failure of basic morality. And I, and I think it's really important to recognize that. You note that four decades ago, philosopher Henry Hsu wrote that he saw no detectable sense of urgency over climate change. Are we now seeing uh, some sense of, of urgency? More than there was then, but still nothing like enough. If we look at um, where... The commitments made by states through the Paris Agreement are to cut their um, climate, their global um, emissions, to look to cut greenhouse gases um, by 2030. If we look at the the commitments that they've made to do those, they are still very far short of what's needed to keep global warming down to um, 1.5 degrees C. Do the intergovernmental palant on climate change reports specify how quickly we must act? They identify a very narrow window within which we need to act. So essentially, we need to be getting to um, net zero by about 2050. They, they, uh, the scientists there include, concluded that we have 30 months to start to bring greenhouse gas emissions down. Uh, that might put us into the first year of uh, some political changes in this country and uh, and uh, your country as well. What might happen if we don't only fail to reverse trends, but make things worse? For example, um, President Trump withdrew from the Paris Agreement, and, and he said that windmills cause cancer. Yes, I mean, I think... <sighs> We are in a situation where what happens to the world is very vulnerable to the political climate of a few states that are very powerful. And of course, the US is, is crucial there. So um, the decision made by the Trump administration to pull out of the Paris Agreement was a huge setback for climate justice. And um, in terms of, of moving forward, we have to hope very much, I think, that the US administration stays um, in hands that recognize what a crisis this is. Are government or business leaders in the U.S. or Europe acting with enough of a sense of urgency on the whole? 
I don't think there is enough of a sense of urgency at the moment. So. Um, it's very clear from it's very clear when we think about this from a, a perspective of, of basic justice that this is a question of human rights being sacrificed already and increasingly in the future through climate change and this is avoidable this is avoidable at relatively low cost if it's um, borne by the the elite the relatively rich in these generations um, and there is nothing like I think the recognition that this needs to happen and needs to happen urgently at a political level, no. In 2013, Vladimir Putin awarded the Order of Friendship to then Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson, who later became Donald Trump's first Secretary of State. If government and fossil fuel industry leaders are friends, what incentive did they have to act contrary to one another's personal interests? Well, I think that very much gets at, at the root of, of part of the problem here. So this is this is an injustice in um, in terms of, of violating people's human rights. It's an injustice in the way in which the burdens of climate change fall on those people who are least responsible um, for causing it, whether you look at this globally or whether you look at it within states um, like the US. But it's also a participatory injustice. This is a situation where the people who are most at stake here have least voice in decision making. So those who should really be having a say in what's happening here, those who are most vulnerable, to climate change are politically silenced. And yes, as you say, we have a situation where governments too often listen to the voices of, of fossil fuel leaders, accept money from them and go on subsidizing fossil fuels in their turn. Well, the IPCC was established in 1988 and scientists have been reporting on climate change for a lot longer than that. In all that time, what have we done? Not enough. I think is is the clear answer. I, I mean, mean 2021 become... was the fifth hottest year on record. And the, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration just reported that methane emissions set a record. CO2 levels also rose. So we, to some degree, we're going in the wrong direction, aren't we? Even though I've been hearing about climate change as a serious problem for many, many years. Exactly. I mean, and so there is, I mean, there is also a huge psychological challenge here to sort of wake up to the enormity of this. And it is happening. It's happening more especially, I think, about among young people who are, who are very aware of how much of a crisis um, this is. Um, but it's also, I think, this, for a long time, the, the, the problem was driven by outright climate denial, and that is obviously still a situation, still still a problem. But increasingly, there is this kind of shift um, in the discussion, in the debate, from outright denial of, of climate change to um, either a kind of shift of responsibility to try and put the blame on individuals and make it about individuals' lifestyle choices. So again, to kind of shift responsibility away from the politicians and especially the fossil fuel companies who really have the, the biggest responsibility to act on this. Um, and there's also been this other shift, which I find um, quite disturbing, which is that there's a tendency now to go from sort of, oh, this isn't a problem, to this is such an enormous problem that we can't do anything about it, it's mm -hmm. too late, this kind of doomerous narrative, which is, is almost as dangerous as the, as the climate denial narrative, because it essentially ends up still putting us in the same situation of, of doing nothing. 
Well, you've written a book about the subject, but can you summarize what the phrase climate justice means? And when you speak of climate justice, are you referring to what is happening and what we must do to alter what will happen? What is happening at the moment is very much climate injustice. So climate justice means protecting humans from the harms caused by climate change and it means not doing those harms for them. So at bottom this is really just about basic morality, it's about not violating people's basic rights, not killing them, not giving them malaria, not destroying their homes, all of the things which climate change is doing. Climate justice is about protecting those. It's about stopping this situation of, of really fundamental injustice where we have this huge um, divide between those people who are, who are causing climate change and those people who are worst impacted by it. And moving forward, of course, it also involves distributing the, the costs of acting on climate change in a fair way, making sure that those people who are most responsible and who are most able to deal with climate change are bearing those costs. And it's about making sure that the, the voices that need to be heard in decision-making are heard, that the voices of those who are most vulnerable to climate change actually get a meaningful say in the decisions that will determine their future. In September 2020, China announced that it would be carbon neutral by 2060, which is uh, still a long way off. Uh, President Biden uh, proposed a 2050 target for the United States. And uh, in November 2021, world leaders met in Glasgow, not far from where you are, for their 26th conference of parties, the, the COP. Um, what happened as a result of that? Is it just a lot of talk? I think the, the, the problem with the, um, the way that this has been done so far, the problem with the Paris Agreement and with the um, international negotiations that we have, and yes, as you say, the most recent one was in Glasgow. I was there marching in the rain in the hope that it would persuade um, leaders to take this more seriously. Um, we have a problem in that, firstly, the decision-making power still rests too much with um, those who have vested interests in not acting on this so quickly. So um, a sort of fair, representative, transparent global decision-making process would make sure that voices from the Global South, for example, are equally heard, that the voices of younger people are heard, that future generations are really given, they can't literally be given a voice, but that, that, that there are those who are there to represent them. What actually happens is we have this very untransparent system where we have essentially a system of diplomatic negotiations. A lot of them are behind closed doors. The richer parties are able to pay to have many more negotiators there. And the decisions do tend to come out much more biased towards the global north than would be actually just on any kind of, um, of moral um, account. So, of course, we, we end up with a situation where, where what is, is provided in the Paris Agreement, it's a lot more than we had before. It's a huge step forward, but it is nothing like enough because it's essentially leaving it up to individual states to decide how much they think they should do, and they are just not committing to do enough. You mentioned a growing movement of young people urging more action on climate change. Obviously, they are concerned about the future and their children's future and their grandchildren's future. But I just recently heard a critic of all of this accuse Greta Thunberg of just reading what some adults have written for her to read. 
I think that's incredibly unfair. I mean, I think um, what, what Greta Thunberg and other activists like Vanessa Nakate, um, for example, have done is that they have shown real leadership and awareness of this situation. They, in a way, are like the, the civil rights movement or the suffragettes movement, where they are a group who a lot of them are, are too young even to vote. They're not being able to be listened to politically. And so they are using sort of peaceful activism to make their case, to say, look, we we should matter here. Climate justice matters here. And actually what's really important, um, I think, with activists like Greta Thunberg and, and those of the Fridays for Future movement is that what's important for them and the, and the Sunset movement is that they are saying climate justice matters. It matters that we protect all of those who, uh, who are vulnerable to climate change and this needs to be globally just rather than just, just focused on themselves as, as individuals or, or, or groups within the global north. Well, so, so I think we have... Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so I think we have a situation where the young people have a real grasp of what, of what justice requires far more than, than their elders or politicians have shown. But they can't vote in national elections in this country or the UK. Uh, so they're really denied a formal voice. Has, uh, they can protest. Has it been proposed that the UN establish a high level representative for future generations? What would that accomplish? It has been proposed. It hasn't. It hasn't been done. Um, it would accomplish this. I mean, so if we are the idea of, of essentially democracy as a, as a way forward um, is that we have a situation where people have a say in the decisions that will affect their lives. And when it comes to future generations, because they are not here yet, they cannot literally have a say. And with something like climate change, it is young people and future generations who are most vulnerable. So having a representative who would be formally charged with giving a voice to those interests in the decision making would be a way to sort of try and try and bridge that gap between the fact that, that these are interests that need to be taken into account and the fact that we have a process where, of course, they cannot represent themselves. Well, economists and behavioral scientists have studied how we discount future gains. Do we also discount the possible future harm of something like climate change? Can we put a value on the future effects of, of climate change? I think we do discount it. And actually, there's a, a political philosopher um, in this country, Simon Caney, who's done some really interesting um, work on this because um, there's some the sort of economist's argument, some economist's argument suggests that we shouldn't be mitigating climate change because it's actually cheaper just to um, allow future generations to adapt to climate change. And those sums rely, they rely not only on kind of standard economic discounting, but essentially what they're doing is they're discounting the value of human lives as we move further into the future. So those sums only work out if you're saying, well, essentially it's less important if people's human rights are protected or not, if they are um, a few generations into the future than now. And that is just morally incredibly problematic. It just doesn't make sense on any kind of convincing model of what we owe to other people. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Elizabeth Cripps, whose latest book, her second book, is called What Climate Justice Means and Why We Should Care. 
published by Bloomsbury. Uh, We have been debating issues of environmental justice for decades, factory emissions, clean water, pesticides, other chemicals, for example. Is climate justice different? Climate justice is similar in in very many ways. Um, And I think actually understanding climate justice, we gain a lot from looking at the environmental justice movement um, and looking at the way in which the environmental justice movement very much emerged from within um, in the US, from within the civil rights movement. So we have this this movement which recognises the way in which environmental costs fall disproportionately on those who, because of historical injustices, are already disadvantaged. So it tends to be um, communities of colour, black communities, indigenous communities, who are in situations where they are bearing environmental burdens. They're the ones who are living close to incredibly polluting factories, for example. And climate change very much exacerbates those injustices. And so that happens on a global level with climate change, of course, because it's the global south that is worst hit by it, while it's countries in the global north, like our countries, that are are causing more of of the harms. So yes, I think um, the climate justice movement has a lot in common and needs to have a lot in common with the environmental justice movement. This is part of a much broader phenomenon. Do issues like the location of a power plant or contamination of water inspire a sense of urgency because they affect us directly now? Yes, I think, I mean, there's a sense in which the environmental justices which are happening in front of our eyes are gain more urgent attention from those who who are facing them. So there is certainly that sense that, as you say, if the power plant is is there now, we can see um, what it's doing to the the immediate environment. That does create a sense of urgency. Although, of course, even there, we don't necessarily realise the full harms for a long time. So the full health costs in terms of, for example, increased cancer rates wouldn't necessarily be apparent always for, for several generations. And actually, with climate change, I think a point that is really important to make when we're having this conversation, you know, I'm, I'm in Scotland, um, you're in New York, is that actually climate change is already causing massive harms in the global south. They, they are already seeing what, what it can do and how bad it can be. It's causing harm where? I'm sorry, I missed that. Um, in, in parts of the global south, so um, in countries, um, many parts of Africa, much of Asia, we're already seeing um, really significant harm through climate change, increased droughts. And of course, we are starting to see that in, 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 in countries like ours as well. So of course, if you look at the wildfires in California or the bushfires in Australia or the wildfires in Europe last year, we are starting to be able to see these harms caused by climate change even in, in, in the richer countries now. Um, but those living in, in poorer countries have often already been dealing with them for generations. Well, the contamination of water in Flint, Michigan, is just one example of how unequal and unjust environmental crises can be. Um, and that had to do with poor people winding up being victims. Have you studied comparable cases in the UK or in other countries? Uh, Is this a situation typical all over the world? That's very interesting because often the examples are drawn from the US. There are particularly salient examples there. um, But it is also the case that in the UK, it tends to be communities who are minority or poorer communities who are often 
end up living in areas where there are greater environmental risks or will be the ones who end up living near the hazardous waste site or, or near the factory. So yes, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the discussion is around cases in the US, but that it is, I think, a global phenomenon. Well, if a, a factory pollutes air or water where I live, I might be able to take the company to court. Um, although uh, that depends on <laughs> the, the various courts. But what can Pacific Islanders, for example, do if sea levels rise because of decades of U.S. and European carbon uh, emissions? I think that is such that is such an important point, and that that goes back to what we're saying about the fact that this is sort of doubly unjust. So not only are people in, in small island states in the Pacific Islands actually losing everything. I mean, they're losing their homes, they're losing their livelihoods, they're losing the, their their country in many ways. You know, their identity. Um, not only is this happening to them through no fault of their own, because the um, greenhouse gas emissions are and have been much much higher in countries like these. But they are also completely unable to 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 find redress. They're unable to have a, a meaningful or strong voice in decision making. I mean, they are present. They are very vocal and and in the international um, summits, climate summits, but they don't, um, as you say, have the ability to to hold um, countries, richer countries, industrialized countries to account. Well, studies of justice 50 or 60 years ago largely reflected the views of white men, white males. How have views of justice, including climate or environmental justice, changed with greater inclusion of the voices of, of women and people of color? So they have, or have uh, they, they changed they, all that much? They have. I mean, so the the environmental um, justice movement was very much um, led by women of colour, and this has been a, a real driving force. This kind of recognition of um, of the way in which climate harms are essentially intersectional environmental harms in generally but including climate harms. We have a situation where it does tend to be. Um, women and people of colour who are worst hit by climate change, whether we look at this globally or within particular countries. And, and this is where the insights of, of a great um, scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw, come in, we can recognise these harms as actually intersectional in a way that there are there are people who who um, fall into, into more than one category. So women of colour, for example, are often harmed in particular ways by climate change and by other environmental harms that we won't recognise if we just sort of focus on the categories of, well, this it was as it does to one community as a whole, or this is what it does to all women. So I think that kind of complex way in which, in which we recognise that the differences and the greater impact on, on certain people has really been brought out um, by the, the widening of our, of our understanding of justice, yes. Many economists and politicians argue that environmental regulation should be subjected to cost-benefit analysis. If the cost outweighs the benefit, then we should deregulate or not impose regulations in the first place. What, what do moral philosophers like you think make of that kind of thinking? Well, I guess one thing to say is that um, from what I, I gathered from, from um, what I've, I've read so far of the new IPCC report is that actually it's not at all clear that that's the case. Not tackling climate change is going to be more expensive than, than acting on it. But 
generally, um, as a moral philosopher, there are dangers associated with going purely on cost-benefit analysis because that just aggregates all the costs involved to all the different people and all the benefits. And so can end up essentially putting economic benefits to one set of per people um, on a par with or allowing them to outweigh really fundamental costs, real serious harms to, to other people. So as a moral philosopher, I prefer to start from the viewpoint that actually we do have some basic rights and there are some things it is fundamentally wrong to do to people, even if it is going to be economically advantageous. Well, isn't cost-benefit analysis a kind of utilitarianism? Um, exactly. how, how does that value people, especially if the people in question are in a minority group? Exactly. So a utilitarian way of, of thinking about this would say, well, we just we just subtotal or, or take the average of of overall welfare and we do whatever or well-being and do whatever will increase that so you can end up with a situation where you just completely sacrifice a minority group in order to make a, a majority group even better off than they would have been and that that just looks fundamentally unjust from from other um, moral political um, points of view don't philosophers distinguish moral reasoning based on utility from that based on rights? Do, do different kinds of moral reasoning lead to different conclusions about how to act on climate change? Yes and no. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, because, yes, there are. So even if we went with full on kind of utilitarianism and interpreted that as, as just cost benefit analysis, it's not clear that we shouldn't, I mean, actually, it looks like we should still be acting on climate change anyway, because because the, the cost of future generations is going to be so high. So unless you think that what happens to future people doesn't matter, actually, though some still say we should be mitigating climate change, we should be taking it seriously. Um, and other versions of utilitarianism are actually much more subtle. They say, well, we should be trying to organise ourselves and live in a way, follow rules um, which which will protect people and that that recognises the fact that because there are some harms that are really bad, we need to prioritise protecting them, um, preventing them. Um, and equally, yes, of course, if we take a rights-based approach, we say, well, we start off with the idea, but there are some things that it is just fundamentally wrong to do to our fellow human beings, then we are going to have a clear-cut mandate for, for acting on climate change. Developing nations want to grow economically. Could curbing or ending fossil fuel use inhibit that? Or, and, and would that be unfair to the developing nations? So that's um, that's a really important aspect of, of climate justice. So one reason I think that we have to think in terms of climate justice rather than only in terms of, of just mitigating climate change. So that's cl climate justice conflicting with economic or political justice. Um, no, what I mean is, as opposed to, so, so we could take an approach of just saying, well, let's just mitigate climate change. That's the all-important goal, and we'll just do it by whatever means mm. are going to be most seem most efficient or quickest or can be pushed through politically easily, most easily. So, for example, just saying, right, no more development. That would be fundamentally unjust because, well, on many reasons, because it would mean that... Um, 
those countries who aren't able to give their citizens a, a, a decent life wouldn't be able to do so. They wouldn't be able to, to increase their, their standard of living to be able to do so. It would um, mean that those who are responsible for those countries that are responsible for all the emissions in the past wouldn't be would, would get the benefits of all, all those emissions and, and the other countries wouldn't be able to, to give their citizens the same chance. So it's incredibly important that, that it is possible for countries to develop so that, that everyone is able to lead a decent standard of human life. But that doesn't necessarily mean increasing emissions. All it means is that actually countries, rich countries like ours, should be doing more to develop technology and to make that technology available to, to other countries, to poorer countries, um, or to, to fund and support them in developing their own technology so that they can, they can develop improved standards of living and without increasing emissions, because the two can be separated. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Elizabeth Cripps, a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh uh, and author of a number, another book as well on climate change called Climate Change and the Moral Agent. Um, I hope you're enjoying our conversation. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book what climate justice means and why we should care. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org. Or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And thank you so much. And Elizabeth, I'm always jealous of people who live in the UK because they don't they're they are spared these fundraisers after all everybody has to pay for public broadcasting there's a license fee whether you listen to it or not yes <laughs> well uh let's uh, talk a bit about uh uh other species aren't more people arguing that we must also consider other species that that animals have right how do we weigh the survival of a species of fish for example against the well-being of people I'm so glad that you asked about this because it's um, it's an aspect of the book that I think is is really important. So um, yes, people, climate change is clearly going to be bad for non-humans as well. It's um, already um, increasing um, the risk of species extinction. It's expected to lead to a lot more um, species extinction and biodiversity loss. And of course, it's also doing really bad things, really bad harms to individual animals. So if we think about um, the images um, from Australia with the bushfires, that the harm that was done, that the burning of, of animals that 
koalas there was really a sort of searing reminder that this is this is doing very bad harm to non-humans as well and yes as philosophers we we think that that matters we think that actually there's not some clear-cut line where we can say well human beings are just so completely different from all the other animals that inhabit this planet that that we should only care about ourselves actually many sort of sentient mammals are, are like us in in many really important ways and they can suffer in really complex ways and, and we ought to take that seriously and equally it, it, it seems that there is something particularly problematic a sort of loss in itself if, if a species um, goes out of existence or if this sort of incredibly complex um, ecosystem which has its integrity and works in a certain way if that is destroyed by climate change so yes as philosophers we think that it's 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 also a real moral problem that climate change is doing all these things to non-humans as well yeah, it's been my sense that we uh, we see something on television about how polar bears are threatened, for example, and we all get very upset, and then the story just disappears, and I have no idea whether the polar bears are disappearing as well. Yes, I mean, I think, I mean, there's some... There's some quite interesting um, research, a completely different field to mine, sort of suggesting that the way in which we worry about animals kind of tends to depend on things like how cute they are and um, how or how useful they are to us. Yeah. Um, so we're not necessarily consistent in the way that we worry about um, non-human animals, whereas it seems like, you know, we should at least be consistent across, say, sentient mammals. But yes, this, I mean, this harm is, is going on and it is, um, it's not getting better. And, and it's, um, and I think in, in highlighting it, we highlight another aspect of the injustice, but one that's actually kind of inseparable from the, from the, the question of injustice to humans, because, because what we're in, in sort of destroying the rest of the world, in destroying other species, we are ultimately destroying what we, what we all depend on to live and to survive. Naomi Klein has studied how corporations and the wealthy have capitalized on disaster. Some are profiting from the war in Ukraine, for example. Others profited from the pandemic. Can climate justice advance if economic justice does not? So... Naomi Klein's work, I think, is, is really interesting and important on this. What I say in my book... You write about her in your book, in fact. Yes, I do. I, I, I certainly um, um, draw on her work in my book. Um, climate change, we don't have to think that we should all be equal, that like the, the goal is political equality to worry about climate justice because climate change is, is violating people's basic rights. But huge inequality is a huge problem for climate justice. And that is because of precisely what you've said, because if you end up in a situation where some people have a disproportionate control of resources, then that means both that their greenhouse gas emissions go through the roof, and it means that they end up with a disproportionate political influence. So they are able, essentially, to control um, the situation and, and keep other people in a situation which where they're, uh, they're kept very badly off. So, so severe inequality, economic inequality, yes, I think is a problem that has to be, has to be tackled as part of, of, of trying to achieve climate justice. For example, Jeff Bezos has a $500 million yacht that's accompanied by another yacht for his girlfriend's helicopter. People joke about it, but many still consider that lifestyle as something to aspire to. 
<laughs> What's to be done about such conspicuous consumption? And how big a role does that play in, in what we're discussing here? I think there's a there's a sort of norm towards consumerism as this idea of material goods as as what we should aspire to as you say as valuable in themselves which is which is kind of doubly bad because of course it is incompatible with tackling climate change so so it's this sort of drive to to just spend more and more on things that we don't really need which is 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 exacerbating climate change but also the flip side of this is that actually Actually, it's not great for us either. I mean, if we look at the at the kind of psychology, actually, consumerism doesn't. It, it's not good for us as as human beings. It, it tends to mean that our identity becomes too kind of built around being materialistic or being consumeristic. Actually, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that living in a way where we're more directly connected with nature, for example, is better for us. So so we've got this situation where what we're doing isn't actually great for us. It's not the way to to, to make our, our lives better or more flourishing, and it's causing, causing climate change. Well, some economists argue that inequality and unequal consumption serves as a motivator for the less for <laughs> okay, yes, well, um, maybe that's another show. I think that might well be a, a whole separate um, separate discussion. I mean, I think, uh, yes, there are there are certainly responses to that. And, and there is inequality and there is extreme inequality. And there is inequality where there is actually opportunity, equal opportunity. And there is inequality where there really isn't equal opportunity. And that, I think, is the situation we're in now. Well, following up on that, the, the super rich are reportedly building bunkers to survive disaster with sites in New Zealand being particularly popular, given their power, if the elite think that they're protected from climate catastrophe or even that they can profit from it, do they have an incentive to block efforts to promote justice, especially if such efforts require redistributing wealth or curbing consumption? They, they may think they do. Um, and that is obviously a, a huge worry for the, the climate justice movement and a reason why I think so much part of the movement is saying that we need to have this shift so that, that the political power doesn't rest so disproportionately with with those who also you know happen to have lots of economic power who, who have the money. But there's also there's also a line of argument which says, well, actually, even for those people, is that kind of future, the future of sort of living in bubbles, having completely destroyed this amazing, beautiful, diverse world that we live in, having destroyed much of the rest of the human race, is that the future that they really want to bequeath their children? And I'm not sure that it is or that it should be. But even if the average person can't build a bunker, many oppose building wind farms near their homes or in the waters off their favorite beach, uh, the not-in-my-backyard kind of thinking, because they consider them unsightly, despite the fact that uh, that would uh, ease our dependency on fossil fuels. Yes, I mean, there's, there's a, it's the same here, and... Um, Wind farms get a very bad press um, when, in fact, the the harm that would be done by having a wind farm near you is absolutely minuscule compared with the harms done by 
the the fossil fuel um, power stations, which which some communities, particularly often more vulnerable communities, have had to live with for decades. Um, and actually, I mean, it's it's primarily a kind of aesthetic worry, not not entirely, but that does seem to be the main worry with wind farms, and that just seems relatively trivial compared with what's at stake. Although I mentioned earlier that when he was president, Donald Trump said that. Uh, the windmills cause cancer uh, with absolutely no evidence uh, that that's the case. Yes, that, I mean, and that is that is part of the of the problem. The fact that we are we do seem to be in a situation where the science is incredibly clear and yet completely unfounded statements can be made by politicians in apparently all seriousness. And that, I think, is a symptom of, of, the, of the predicament that we're in. Does Boris Johnson do similar things? I must admit, I, I've interviewed Boris Johnson, and he was not, the, as far as I was concerned, he was not the most impressive politician I've ever talked to. <laughs> That's very interesting. Um, that was after he had left being mayor before he became prime minister. It's so it's not as extreme with mm -hmm. him. Um, but there are certainly, I mean, the Conservative Party here has not acted um, particularly convincingly on climate change. At the moment, um, we're seeing a situation where they're still talking about fracking, they're still talking about North Sea oil, um, haven't even decisively um, rejected new coal mines, whilst at the same time hosting um, the Glasgow COP, by, before which it was absolutely crystal clear that we needed to move away from from fossil fuels and urgently to to move away from coal, so um, there is there is a big gap um, in rhetoric and actual policy here as well. Okay. I mean, there are there are targets. You know, we do we do have um, reasonable um, targets under the Paris Agreement um, and long term targets to cut um, emissions. But looking at the decisions that the government's actually making at the moment, it doesn't look like they're going to actually achieve them. What steps must we be willing to take individually to promote climate justice? Can, can people take needed steps without government coordination or incentives or even legal restrictions? Um, I think the most important thing that we can do as individuals is that we can um, try and work with others to promote collective action, so to promote political change. So I think there's a, there's a tendency to think, if we think we're going to do anything about it at all, we kind of retreat into what we think is easiest to control, which is our own lives. And that is really important. So, so cutting our emissions, doing things like trying to reduce driving and reducing eating meat or, or not flying unnecessarily. Those are, are some big ticket individual things that we can do and they can be part of trying to change social norms and part of trying to promote political change. But I think the most important thing for us to do is to try and push for the political change because that's what that's what needs to happen if we're actually going to to achieve anything like climate justice. My guest on today's London Low Pitted Lodge is Elizabeth Cripps, senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, her book, What Climate Justice Means and Why We Should Care, is published by Bloomsbury. 
And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. In the United States, we, we, we can't even agree on what justice requires regarding economic issues or the rights of people of color or women. So how can we agree on what justice requires on climate or environmental issues? And do we need to agree? Can we proceed without agreeing? So it's interesting that you used um, that you use those two um, examples because I think race justice and gender justice are kind of inseparable from climate justice. So but they are big sort of, issues today, and that's why they came uh, they came to mind. Yeah, I mean they they are they're huge issues in their own right, and they are also inseparable. Or climate justice, perhaps to put it the other way, is inseparable from from those issues. We won't have climate justice unless it is part of of, of gender and race justice. Um, in terms of, of, of what we can agree on moving forward, I think the thing I, 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 I think is particularly important to stress about this is that the reason that climate change matters isn't morally controversial. All you have to recognise in order to see climate injustice for what it is, is the fact that the way that we live in countries like ours is causing people, people in other parts of the world, people in our own countries, people in future generations to be made very sick or to die or it's taking away their homes or it's, it's causing floods, it's causing extreme weather. Essentially, we are living in a way that violates human rights and that undermines pretty much the most fundamental moral principle that there is. If, if anything is an injustice, that has to be. So I think we can at least agree on that and recognise how urgent it is, because that ought to be something that one can agree on, whatever whatever your political affiliation, that that matters. Well, we're seeing floods and tornadoes here in the United States uh, increasing. Uh, and I would have thought that that would have led uh, for a, a more uh, active movement uh, from the people who have been victims of it. This year, I, I think last week alone, we had something like 10 or 15 tornadoes in uh, throughout the American South. Yes. And, and there's been flooding. And of course, there have been all the fires in California. Uh, people have lost their homes. Uh, they've lost their lives. And yet, uh, I don't see a, a, a powerful movement developing. People, I mean, so these are these extreme weather events are clearly made more likely and they're made worse um, by climate change. Um, and I think there is a, an increasing movement. There is there is a, a big recognition, um, especially among young people, of the importance of climate change. So we are seeing this this groundswell of, of support um, for urgent action on climate change. And actually, interestingly, some studies um, show that that among younger people, it's much more across the political spectrum. So even among younger Republicans, younger conservatives, there's support for action on climate change. So actually, I think I think that it is changing. After the dissolution of the <laughs> excuse me, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the United States was arguably the world's only superpower. Could it have acted then to impose some climate policies on the entire world? It certainly could have acted then to, to clean up its own act and to set an example and, yes, to use its international 
sway its diplomatic power to 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 make the case for action on this globally. I mean, that there was a huge missed opportunity at a at a global level several decades ago to take action on this. The stock of. Go ahead, finish. I was going to say, but it's that sort of saying that is frequently among activists, which is, you know, the time to act was 30 years ago, but the second best time to act is now. I mean, it's still, it's, we can still do a lot now. The stock of Chenier, the largest American exporter of liquefied natural gas, jumped over 7% just hours after Russia invaded Ukraine. So... Uh, uh, I'm sure that the people involved in that business are, were very happy and are not thinking about climate change. Uh, yes, I suspect that they are not thinking about climate change and looking at fossil fuel companies generally, there's quite a bit of evidence of the role that they have played first in trying to um, suppress the science on how dangerous climate change is and then to influence politics and now to try and push responsibility onto individuals to to change their lives. I think the I mean we've also seen a kind of shift towards oh we need to use more of our own homegrown fossil fuels now in the UK because of the situation with with um, Russia and Ukraine and and it just seems like completely the wrong reaction. I mean what this um, reminds us of among all the many other searing moral issues that are, that are going on there is the fact that you know we are completely dependent on this um, on on fossil fuels on oil which are at the root of of so many um, incredibly morally problematic situations we we should be using this as, as another reason to focus more on getting into renewables as, as fast as possible and that that should be the political response although unfortunately it doesn't look like being that in countries like the United States or the UK, we may settle disputes in courts or urge politicians to draft legal solutions. We turn to government to organize or even coerce a solution. But what's the prospect of building comparable international institutions, something with more clout than the UN has been applying? So that's, I mean, that is really interesting. So there's um, a philosopher, Stephen Gardner, who, um, who, who talks about the, makes exactly this point and says that we, we, the, we have the international negotiations, the, the, the COP process essentially hasn't worked. This international diplomatic process hasn't worked. And he thinks we need to kind of go back to basics and have a kind of global constitutional convention um, through which, you know, we actually make a decision globally representative on how we're going to protect future generations. And we need to use that to decide, well, what kind of institution can we develop at a, at a global level that's actually going to provide meaningful um, justice for, for future generations? We have very little time left, but I was wondering, in addition to climate change, we face declining biodiversity, mass extinction, plastics and other chemicals changing the biochemistry of life on this planet. Are any of those issues something you'd like to, to comment on in about two minutes? Well, they are all also injustices and they are all also part of, I think, the same phenomenon. A lot of this comes down to to the way that we've commoditized the non-human world and 
because when we look at the way in which the impact falls worst on on women and people of colour, the there's a sort of the eco-feminist argument seems to be particularly convincing that says, well, we've we've tried to commoditize each other, other humans, and we've also exploited and commoditized the non-human world, and and that is is how we've ended up in this situation that we're in now. So well, these some, are all part and parcel of the same phenomenon. Some local supermarkets have banned plastic bags. <laughs> as a way of of combating this. I mean, I guess that's small potatoes compared to the bigger issues, but those are the sorts of things that we should be trying to do? Well, yeah, I mean, look, everything helps, and supermarkets have a lot of power, so them cutting, banning plastic bags, or in fact probably a lot more useful would be if they massively reduced the plastic, unnecessary plastic packaging that they use and they produce. But, I mean, there's also, you know, there are, there are, there's a question of, of what changes are needed. And if supermarkets are taking this seriously, they could maybe also look at, well, how many vegan products are they stocking? Are they still dominated by meat and dairy in terms of the, of the protein that they provide to their customers? There's a lot of other big ticket ways in which supermarkets could help. I've been speaking with Elizabeth Cripps, a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh about her latest book, What Climate Justice Means and Why We Should Care. It's from Bloomsbury Continuum. She, her previous book was Climate Change and the Moral Agent. And it has been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. Also to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopez at Lodge, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes Apple and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give the number to WBAI.org. Please do it right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London located at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, What Climate Justice Means and Why We Should Care, by Elizabeth Cripps. So why not give us that call right now, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech. So... 
Please keep this 100% listener-sponsored alive and thriving with a tax-deductible support by calling 212-209-2950 or going online to give to WBAI.org. And we hope you can join us on Monday when my guest will be Dr. Larry Jacobs discussing his new book, Democracy Under Fire. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.